Good morning, everybody. Hey, so good to see you. So good to be together uh, with you. Welcome, everybody, here in Waukesha. Those of you over in uh, Pewaukee on the other side of the camera, and those of you joining us online, wherever you might be, uh, great to have you here with us uh, today. Before I get started, I want to share some good news uh, with you and uh, tell you about what God did uh, last weekend. We had a great, great Easter uh, weekend. Here's some numbers. Over 4,200 people attended our campuses. And uh, yeah, let's give God a hand. Yeah. Um, God brought uh, almost 800 more people this Easter than last Easter. Uh, Pewaukee had a great Easter Sunday. Uh, over 460 people attended, which is more than Christmas. And uh, we had six people decide to follow Jesus and get uh, baptized. I'm just so uh, excited and grateful for the way that God is working. And I want to say thank you to all of you who, who uh, invited, reached out and invited people and to all our volunteers and staff, thank you. We couldn't do it without you. And I'm just glad. I'm just so grateful that all of you are here uh, today. We're beginning, I think, a really important uh, series uh, today called I Believe in God, But. And it's because Gallupol found that about 90% of Americans say they believe in God, but there is a, uh, for, for most of those people, for many of those people, there is a question, a hesitation a concern, a doubt that goes along with it. And so our goal in this series is to uh, dig for explanations for the most common questions and doubts and hesitations. And I believe God's going to help many of us just push those uh, doubts and concerns aside so that we can move forward and follow Jesus and really live. And this series, I think it's going to equip us to uh, engage in conversations and help other people deal with their questions and doubts as uh, well. Today we're going to begin with a really, really big uh, question. Can I be sure that God is real? Now, many of you have a quick answer, probably, uh, to that question, but I wonder if we really give this question the time that it uh, deserves. This idea of God, this notion of God, it's almost impossible to av- avoid it. I mean, God's name is actually on our uh, currency. Uh, y- y- you remember this right here? Uh, this is called money. Yeah, we, we used to use this to uh, buy things, and on every, every uh, dollar, no matter which kind of bill it is, on the backside, it says, in God we trust. Many of us, when we grew up, we learned the uh, Pledge of Allegiance. We memorized it. There's a phrase, one nation under, help me out, God. Very good. Yeah, and even our politicians, when they're given a, a big speech, an important speech, they'll oftentimes have this crescendo, and at the end of it, they'll say, may God bless America. And so this idea of God, it comes up in public life, it comes up in everyday life, and I think we would all agree that almost everybody thinks about God and wonders about God from time to time. And it's not just adults, kids wonder about God, and sometimes kids get creative and they write letters to God. We intercepted a few of these. Here's this first one by uh, Brandon. God, I bet it's very hard for you to love all of everybody in the whole world. How do you do it? There are only four people in our family, and I can never do it. Your friend, Brandon. Maybe you can relate to Brandon. Look at what Lucy says. Dear God, are you really invisible, or is it just a trick? And then here's my favorite one. Jackson says, dear God, maybe Cain and Abel would not kill each other so much if they had their own rooms. It works with my brother. Love, uh, Jackson. I'm so glad that his brother's not killing him so much. Um, any more these days. Now, it's easy to laugh at these letters written by kids uh, to God, these questions that will uh, likely go unanswered. But if we're honest, when we have 
uh, serious questions as adults that go unanswered about God, it makes God, it can make God seem less than believable. Let me ask you a personal question. Do you ever, do you ever wonder if God really exists? I mean, be really honest, whether you attend church a lot or hardly at all, do you ever just kind of wonder at times, is God really there? I, I, I will tell you what, I do. I mean, there are times, there have been times when I've wondered, is God really there doing what he's supposed to be doing? And pretty much everybody that I've met in life at some point questions the existence of God. And this might surprise you, but I think at times having questions or doubts is actually very healthy. I mean, today, my goal is not to prove the existence of God with absolute certainty because I can't do that. It takes faith to believe in, in God. I mean, if you want to have absolute certainty, 100% guarantee, and never, ever feel doubt, that wouldn't take faith. Faith is going to the edge of all that you know and taking one more step. And Scripture says that without faith... It is impossible to please God. I want you to believe in God and orient your life around him on the basis of faith. But faith doesn't mean that you check your brains at the door. Some people who deny the existence of God, they say that educated people, really intelligent people, don't believe in the existence of, of God. In the last 20 years, books on atheism have actually increased in sales and influence and academic and college environments, but many of history's most influential intellectuals would say that they absolutely believe in the existence of God. I'm going to give you two examples. The first one is Albert Einstein. Albert Einstein was one of the most highly recognized and revered scientists in the 20th century, and he's quoted as saying, everyone who is seriously committed to the cultivation of science becomes convinced that in all the laws of the universe is manifest a spirit, the spirit of God, vastly superior to man and to which we must, to which we with our powers must feel humble. Do you know that? Albert Einstein believed in the existence of God. Think about it. Einstein came up with the theory of relativity, the speed of light, and he looks at the complexity of the world and he's like, no way is that random. No way did molecules and atoms just come together by accident, not even remotely possible. Let me give you another example, another scientist, not as well known as Einstein, but just as revered in some circles. His name is Francis Collins. Francis Collins is a physician who's also a geneticist. He discovered the genes associated with many diseases. He led the Human Genome Project, and uh, I mean, he's really brilliant. He figured out how to map out DNA. He's one of the, he's one of the uh, most intelligent scientists uh, in, 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 in the world. And uh, he's the director of the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland. And here's how he describes his journey to not just believe in a God, but to believe in the God of the Bible. Take a look. Well, in the home where I grew up, uh, faith was not something that was talked about very much. Uh, my father was a professor of drama, my mother a playwright. Uh, when I went to college and those discussions in the dorm late at night about religion uh, began to occur, I had no particular reason to attach value uh, to a faith system. It had never been something I was familiar with or had internalized at all. 
And I assumed that any religious feelings that anyone held must be on the basis of some emotional experience, and I didn't trust those, or on the basis of some childhood indoctrination, uh, which I felt I was fortunate to have missed. I loved the experience of learning about the human body and all of the components of that, and I particularly loved being introduced to genetics. But then I ended up in the medical school curriculum sitting at the bedside of patients with diseases. This was no longer an abstract study of molecules and organ systems. These were real people. And one afternoon, one of my patients, a wonderful elderly woman, much like a grandmother, uh, who had very bad heart disease. Uh, she had a particularly bad episode of chest pain uh, while I was with her. She got through it, and at the end of that, explained to me how her faith was the thing that helped her in that situation. She realized that the doctors around her weren't really giving her that much help, but her faith was. And after she finished her own very personal description uh, of that faith, she turned to me, and I had been silent, and she looked at me quizzically, and she said, what do you believe, doctor? And ultimately, I had to admit to myself that her question had made me realize that I had arrived at an answer to the most important issue that we humans ever deal with. Is there a God? And I had arrived there without ever really looking at the evidence. And I was supposed to be a scientist. If there's one thing scientists claim they do is to arrive at conclusions based upon evidence. And I hadn't taken the trouble to do that. I was greatly assisted uh, by a pastor who lived down the road who I went and asked about all this and who gave me a copy of C.S. Lewis's wonderful book, Mere Christianity. Because here was an Oxford scholar, a prodigiously developed intellect, who had traveled the same path. Within those pages, I realized for the first time that one can come to belief on a rational basis and that in fact, given the many pointers that one sees around oneself in terms of the universe and it having a beginning and its fine-tuning in terms of the way in which all those constants that determine the behavior of matter and energy seem to have been set just in a certain very precise range to make life possible uh, and many other things including my beloved mathematics and why they actually work anyway to describe the universe something that makes you think the creator must have been a mathematician that brought me then to the person of Jesus Christ as a person who was historically extremely well documented. That was news to me. I thought Christ was as much myth as history and I realized after reading more about it, this was a historical figure upon which we have a great deal of evidence for his existence and his teachings and even his rising from the dead in a literal way. That day at uh, my patient's bedside started a journey for me, a journey that I was reluctant uh, to begin, but I felt I needed to, a journey that I thought would result in strengthening my atheism, but to my surprise, resulted in my conversion. Some of the smartest people in the world believe in the existence of God. I like something Francis Collins said about how, I like this phrase, he said, the, the fine tuning of the uh, universe and the, uh, the, the, the world points to a designer of God. For example, the gravity of the uh, earth is finely tuned. Gravity remains consistent and holds a thin layer of oxygen and nitrogen in the right balance up until 50 miles above the earth. 
where the atmosphere ends. That's hard to explain by accident. And the size of the earth is perfectly tuned. If the earth was bigger like Jupiter or smaller like Mercury, life on earth would be impossible. The fine tuning of the earth points to a designer God. Now, I could go on and on giving examples from uh, mathematics and science and talking about really, really smart people like Albert Einstein and Francis Collins on how they believe in God. But at the end of the day, our belief in God must go deeper than intellectual reasons. I'm not downplaying science. Science carries enormous weight pointing to the existence of God. But we're more than, ira- than rational robots, right? We are emotional and intuitive and relational. And our answer to the question, is there a God, needs to be more than just intellectual reasoning. It needs to be holistic, even experiential. I remember a season in my life when I struggled with some doubt. I had this issue that I I prayed about over and over because I really wanted to hear from God. I prayed as hard as I could, but it, it seemed like my prayers went up to the ceiling and bounced back down. And for a long period, I prayed, and it felt like God ignored me, or God didn't hear me, or God didn't care, or maybe he didn't exist. That's how it felt to me. And I had a degree in Bible and theology. I could have given you intellectual reasons for the existence of God. I could have explained why it makes good sense to believe in God, but in that season in my life, it didn't matter because God just, he didn't seem real to me. God seemed distant and unresponsive, and I wondered Is God really there? For most people, doubts about God's existence are not entirely based on intellectual reasoning. Uh, For some of you, you know, maybe you believed in God. Maybe you believed God was real at some point in your life. But then something came along and it tainted you or devastated you. And it began to feel like God is this distant relative living on the other side of the planet. Or maybe you were part of a church. And someone that you considered a friend, somebody that you looked up to, maybe a a church leader did something to hurt you or disappoint you, and you decided if that's what God's people are like, I want nothing to do with them or him. Or maybe every version of God's people you see on display, I mean, seems so narrow-minded, and you want nothing to do with a God of such arrogant people. And for any of you in the room that have had an experience like that, I don't blame you for the way that you feel. But at the same time, if you step back, my hunch is that your life experience is broader than just those experiences. And if you slow down and think about it, there are probably moments you've experienced in your life that point you in the other direction to God. Moments of awe, moments of wonder, Moments that take your breath away that you can't fully explain and point you towards something bigger than yourself. And I want to call these moments, I'm going to call them signposts. I want to talk about signposts. I'm going to use this phrase signpost today. Would you say this phrase with me out loud? Signpost. Now, these don't necessarily make an airtight case for the existence of God intellectually, but I think they resonate deeply with us and they point us in the direction of God, and they nudge us toward God. So let me give you a few of these, but before I do, I want to acknowledge this is a different kind of message that I'm giving today. I don't want anybody to leave today thinking, oh, did Ben forget to include any scripture? Because I'm intentionally trying to answer this question, is there a God 
without quoting scripture. And here's why. Because you might be in a conversation with someone who doesn't believe in God, and quoting scripture after scripture after scripture is probably not helpful. So I'm doing this intentionally, strategically today. And you'll see there's a few places where I can't help myself, and I'll give a a, a scripture. One signpost beyond ourselves is the uh, signpost of beauty. Think about beauty. The experience of beauty. N.T. Wright is a a brilliant theologian and author, and uh, here's what he says about it. We must acknowledge that beauty, whether in the natural order or within human creation, is sometimes so powerful that it evokes our deepest feelings of awe, wonder, gratitude, and uh, reverence. I think all of us have experienced these moments. Last uh, November, I had the opportunity to spend a few days with some pastor friends, a small group of pastors in Breckenridge, Colorado. One of the pastors has a friend who owns a beautiful home in the uh, Rocky Mountains in Breckenridge, and he was nice enough to let us use his house. And here's a picture of the view out of the uh, living room that we uh, just marveled at every uh, day. I loved looking at those uh, mountains. Sometimes we would even just sit in silence and look at the beautiful view. I felt a sense of awe a closeness with God, a sense that God is real. It was so spectacular and beautiful. It points to God. God had to create it. That's one of those signposts. And I've had the same kinds of experiences when I've gone to the ocean or even sometimes when I hear a beautiful song or enjoy just a terrific meal with some friends. And you use words like awesome or divine or heavenly to describe these experiences. Here's what beauty does. Beauty points us to a divine artist, a divine artist who orchestrated and created a spectacularly beautiful world. Now, I've never been there, but take a look at this picture of Norway. I didn't know Norway was so breathtakingly beautiful. This is called Pulpit Rock. Not sure I'd want to stand, you know, right there where that guy is, but isn't that just stunningly beautiful? There's a verse in the Old Testament about the beauty of the world that says the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. In the New Testament, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made. Every day, in every language, the beauty of the world communicates God's existence. And so if you ever have some doubts about God, sometimes the best thing that you can do is just spend some time in the beauty of nature. Go for a a walk uh, in the park. Go for a walk along the river or the lakefront. Go for a hike at Lapham Beach. Go to the zoo. Let God communicate with you through the beauty of his creation. All right, a second signpost that points us beyond ourselves is our longing for justice. By justice, I mean human beings across the planet have a God-given morality, a passion for fairness and justice and right and wrong. Travel to almost any playground this summer, and you'll probably hear some kids yell, that's not fair, because having a sense of fairness and justice is just part of what it means to be human, and we all know the, the world's broken. There is so much in the world that puts God's beauty at at risk. You've probably experienced this this desire for justice. If you've ever seen people living in extreme poverty, a few years ago I had the opportunity to travel to Haiti. Haiti is the poorest country 
in the Western Hemisphere, and it's just a one-hour flight from Florida. People living in, in homes made of scrap metal. They're not as good as where many of us keep our lawnmower or snow, snowblower. Kids running around on dirty streets without shoes or, or clothing. Their sewer is an open ditch. I didn't have the words to say, except this isn't the way the world is supposed to be. Or maybe you've experienced it watching on TV when you hear about a shooting or a stabbing or violence because of somebody's skin color or race or political views or religious views. And you think, this is not right. We feel it in our bones. Somebody's got to do something about this. C.S. Lewis, one of the greatest Christian thinkers of the 20th century, said, human beings all over the earth have this curious idea that they ought to behave in a certain way. Look at this. And they cannot really get rid of it. He believes, he believed that we have moral facts in the universe, that every civilization believes that betraying a friend or lying to a family member goes against moral virtue. Every culture values loyalty over backstabbing. And Lewis said, this moral instinct points to a source of morality. And that source of morality is not yourself. It is God. And only human beings have this God-given morality. You know, your dog doesn't have a sense of uh, justice or morality. Your cat has the opposite sense <laughs> of uh, justice, like this one right here. I don't know how to say this, but you don't have a hamster anymore. Yeah, no moral code. No moral code there. This moral instinct is God-given to human beings. Scripture puts it this way. God's law is not something alien. There is something deep within them that echoes God's yes and no, right and wrong. Them is uh, Paul referring to the Gentiles. He's saying that the Gentiles uh, didn't have a religious upbringing or religious structure or a God who brought morality into their uh, lives. But Paul says the Gentiles have morality written on their hearts. We all do. Because God created us with a deep sense of morality and a passion for justice. And it points us to God. Here's another signpost. I'm going to call this spiritual experience. I've heard many of you say that you can feel, that you feel the presence of God. You feel strengthened by God. You talk about receiving guidance from God, God answering your prayers, God blessing your life, God changing your, your life. Many of you say, God has strengthened my marriage, my family. God has strengthened my friendships. Many of you would, would say that your life is better because you've experienced God. Something I love about our church, so many of you willing to share stories of how God has, has worked in your life, how God has changed uh, your life. I never get tired of hearing those stories. Uh, last week for Easter, Lisa Pierce shared a story about how she started attending here a few years ago with her son and her husband, and, and she reconnected with God and, and got uh, baptized. And God gave her just a new peace and freedom and joy in, in her life. One of the reasons I need church, I need gatherings like this, I need to be <clears throat> in a small group is because I need to hear stories of people experiencing God and God changing their lives. And you do too, because those stories point us to the existence of, of God. I mean, how do you account for millions and millions of people who regularly claim to experience God? It's hard to argue against somebody's personal experience 
someone's personal story. That's a valid, that's a valid signpost that points us to God. One more signpost is our desire for relationships. I think we all have a longing for healthy, meaningful relationships, even when relationships get difficult and maybe you get to the point where you say, you know, I'm done with dating. I'm throwing in the towel. I'm, I'm done with it. But there is still a part of us that wants to do life with someone, with, some, with, with others. And these relationships, when they're right, they point us toward God because God made us with a deep longing for relationships. Maybe you experience this at the birth of a child. If you've been in the delivery room, it's like watching a miracle. And uh, you go, wow, and you just instantly experience this, this powerful love for this new baby. It points you somewhere, doesn't it? Maybe you've done this as a parent when your child is sleeping, which is the best way for them to be when they're little, sleeping. And you gaze at your child and you can just feel the love. And you get a glimpse of what, it, of, of, of what it's like to have a father in heaven who loves his children. Or maybe for you it happened at the altar when you made your wedding vows. You looked into the eyes of another person and you made a, a promise to love them until death do us part because you believe that God gave you uh, this soulmate. Or maybe you've been with a group of friends and you get past all the surface conversation about weather and sports and all that stuff. And you, get, you start talking about things that really matter to you, your hopes, your dreams, your fears, your faith. And the power of those relationships makes you think this is the way it's supposed to be. <clears throat> and it points you to God. I want to show you a picture that uh, is kind of a signpost uh, for me, it's a picture of me with my, our youngest son, uh, Ryan. Ryan did something for me uh, right before this picture was taken. You can probably tell this is not really a, a, a great picture of, of me. I'm not feeling the greatest. I, I've got the car door open. I'm ready to go home. And I'm leaning against the car. And Ryan, I'm not putting my full weight on my legs. My leg is uh, hurting. This picture was taken about four and a half years ago, right after I finished a marathon. I, uh, I, I actually ran two marathons uh, that day, uh, my first marathon and my last uh, marathon, <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> Marnie and Ryan dropped me off at the starting line, and uh, I looked for them. I mean, there were thousands of people. I never saw them all morning uh, long, and uh, I started out okay. I'm plodding along and, and uh, feeling good until mile 20. I heard somebody say one time that marathons begin at mile 20. They were, they were right. My legs started hurting about mile 23. My legs started hurting like never before. Mile 24, I'm afraid I'm not going to finish. All of a sudden, I hear, hey, Dad. And my son Ryan surprises me and jumps out of the crowd. And he ran the next mile beside me. And I felt so encouraged. Uh, his... Uh, running that mile alongside of him just meant so much. It felt so good to me. I totally forgot about my pain, and I made it. I thought crossing the finish line would be this amazing moment that I would remember, but the best moment for me, the best memory by far, was that mile that we ran side by side. That was a signpost for me. Truth is, life is kind of like a marathon. You go through difficulty and pain in life, and having someone you love with you, it helps you not just, to not just give up, but it gives you strength to make it through. And the love we encounter 
it points us to God because God is relational and loving to the core. This is something that the first Christ followers believed that Jesus revealed about God, that God is love. We're made in God's image, and that's why loving relationships resonate so deeply and powerfully in, inside of us, and they point us to God. I think probably all of us in the room have experienced these signposts, maybe the uh, signpost of beauty or the signpost of justice or spiritual experience or loving relationships. All of us have experienced moments of awe and wonder that point us to God. And so I want to push on you a little bit today. I want to give you a couple challenges. Blaise Pascal liked to challenge people, and he has helped many people to believe in God. He was a 17th century mathematician, one of the greatest intellects in Western civilization. And after he started believing in God and following Jesus, he had a passion for helping people believe too. And he would challenge people to make a wager on God. He would say, make a bet. Make a bet there is a God who loves you. And if you're right and he shows up, you have gained everything. And if you make this bet that there is a God and he doesn't show up in your life, you've lost nothing. And so make a bet that God is real. I want to challenge everyone here. I want to challenge all of you to take Pascal's wager and make it a prayer. Say this prayer every day during this series. God, if you're real, make yourself real to us. God, if you're real, make yourself real to us. Now, notice I, I, I use the plural pronoun here, which leads to the second challenge. I want you to take this journey together with us. I want you to join us for the next five weekends during this series because believing in God and following him is the biggest decision in your life. It deserves the next five weekends. Equipping ourselves to help other people find and follow God is so important, it deserves the next five uh, weekends. And I also, I, wanna, I want you to join a life group so that you can really dig deeper, ask questions, and encourage other people on this uh, journey, and I really want you to be here next weekend. We scheduled one of, the, one of my favorite speakers on the planet, Jay Warner uh, Wallace, to talk about the most important question in this entire series. Is there proof for the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Now, we had a little surprise a couple weeks ago. Jim called us up and let us know that because of a uh, uh, he's recovering from a medical uh, issue, doctor's orders. He's not going to be able to travel here and be with us in person next weekend. But fortunately, Jim sent us a video of the message he was going to give, and we're going to show that next weekend. He also uh, recorded an introduction of, uh, to, to his message uh, next weekend for us. Take a look. I'm Robert Glenn, Jay Warner Wallace here. I'm so glad you guys are doing this series, I Believe in God, But... That but with the three dots is important because we all have questions and, and concerns and some of us are more skeptical than others and this is a series that's designed to help you answer the important questions. So I'm going to include a short message that will help you examine the resurrection to see if it's the most reasonable inference from evidence. The resurrection of Jesus is the single most important piece of evidence in the entire Christian worldview and Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians 15. 
He says, if this isn't true, then we have been lying to you. We have been false witnesses. That's why I think this message, this single piece of evidence is the most important piece of evidence you could ever examine if you're curious if Christianity is true. So let's watch this together. I hope it'll help you to understand how important evidence is to the Christian worldview and why your trust, your belief, your faith is not grounded on wishful thinking, but is instead reasonable in light of the evidence. Yeah, come back next weekend and see the rest of it. I have watched the entire message. It is the best message I've ever heard on the subject of evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. I can't wait for you to hear this message. And next weekend, we are giving away 100 free copies of books by Jim Wallace. We just believe he's got a powerful message about Jesus. We're, we're glad to make his books available uh, to you. These books are an excellent resource for helping us with our doubts and with our questions. And if you don't get one of the free copies, 100 free copies, we're going to have Jim's books available for purchase in the, in the lobby at cost. Don't miss Jim Wallace next weekend. And bring somebody with you, especially someone who has questions about Jesus. It might change their life. Because nothing says God is real like the empty grave. Nothing says God wins and we win like the resurrection of Jesus. I've talked about several signposts today. But the greatest signpost is Jesus. The ultimate signpost is Jesus pointing us to the one true God. And nothing says God loves you and wants a relationship with every one of you like the cross and like communion. Because Jesus experienced untold pain and suffering on the cross, not only to give us forgiveness, but to give us a personal relationship with him uh, when we choose, that begins when we choose to trust him. And then to keep making himself real to us, he puts his spirit inside of us to those who choose to trust in him and follow him. And he asked us to remember him by participating in a real and simple meal each week that we call communion. In a moment, we're going to have the opportunity to share communion together. Our communion is open to everyone because Jesus invites everyone who believes in him to take communion and to remember that he is alive, he is real, and he loves every single person. Let me pray for us before communion. God, we come to you right now in... We know there are times when we fail to notice you. And in failing to notice you, sometimes we think we don't know you and we aren't sure if you exist. But God, you are so persistent in your love for us, so relentless in your desire for a relationship with us, that you just keep showing up and we say thank you for that pursuit. And thank you, God, for the many signposts that resonate deeply with us and nudge us towards you and point to you, especially the signpost of Jesus and his death and his amazing resurrection. And so, God, we pray as a community of people, God, we pray if you're real, for every one of us here, no matter where we are on our spiritual journey, God, make yourself real to us. Make yourself real to all of us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.